The current coronavirus situation and the lockdown measures being taken are having a worrying impact on people currently living with domestic abuse. In this podcast, Safe Lives Practice Advisor Rachel Azan talks to survivor and Safe Lives pioneer Ursula and Dr. Alison Gregory, a researcher at Bristol University. Dr. Gregory is a leading researcher on domestic abuse with a particular focus on informal supporters. Rachel, Ursula and Alison discuss how friends, family and neighbours might be able to help someone who doesn't feel safe at home. This podcast was recorded remotely as we are following the government guidelines. We apologise for any breaks in the audio or reduced sound quality. Thank you, Alison and Ursula, for joining with me today for this podcast. Um, We're going to look at the important role of friends and family members for people experiencing domestic abuse and what some of the challenges and worries there might be for them at the moment uh, and some things they could think about doing for loved ones, but also themselves. Um, So, Alison, what do you think are the key issues for friends or family members of someone experiencing domestic abuse right now? Well, I think we're all in a situation where we've been thrown together. So um, many of us are with people in our households 24-7. And on top of that, there are the kind of additional pressures, I suppose, of the current situation, such as financial worries that may increase tension within households and which may potentially increase the severity um, of any harming behaviours that are happening. And that can be really difficult for people who are friends, family members, neighbours, colleagues, because they're not seeing the people that they love. They're not able to kind of see how people are doing. They're not necessarily able to check out any concerns that they've got um, or to see whether there's kind of any indication of harmful behaviours that are potentially escalating and could be really worrying for people actually Um, and our usual routines have changed our usual forms of being in touch with other people um, have altered and shifted and friends and family members may be concerned about whether it's even safe to get in touch with a person who's experiencing harming behaviors you know how best to contact them whether their communications are being observed or monitored whether conversations are likely to be interrupted so i think One of the key issues, I suppose, is how to be in touch with people at the moment and how to do that safely. Ursula, is there anything that you'd add to that? Um, Yes, I think uh, this is particularly difficult time for um, people living with abusive behaviours in the home and also for um, others who may be supporting them as friends or family. I think at the same time that people who have been living with abusive behaviours in the home will have felt some of this isolation and lockdown experience already. So um, that might mean that they will have some coping strategies that can also be used during this time. So do you think sort of some of the worries then that friends and family members might be having at the moment about how situations made worse, but actually sort of survives in those situations might be using the kind of coping mechanisms and skills they've got already to try and manage that and to try and give a bit of reassurance, I suppose, to people? Yes, I think a lot of people have um, put thought and energy into how they can um, still connect with trusted people in their lives who may have already been acting as a a kind of anchor for them in 
what feels often like very rough seas for people in relationships that perhaps go through tremendous ups and downs um, under um, what you describe as normal circumstances. Um, that I'm not minimising the extra difficulties that people are facing now because this is a, a real challenge, as Alison said, to be together 24-7 um, with all the additional pressures that come with it. Um, but just to think about the fact that they're from the outside looking in, if you have been living perhaps or supporting a person over some time, one thing that a person, a supportive person can do is to consider what what coping strategies you might have already used together, um, what routines or possibilities there might be for keeping in touch. So keeping that anchor. I was thinking it's a bit like um, the, the, the length of time that you might have to um, to work through with somebody and the patience required can feel like being right at the end of a long tunnel mm. and it, it can be quite a frustrating experience also um, sometimes triggering because you have been perhaps through some ups and downs with that person in the past perhaps as a, a family member um, but you are in some ways holding a light at the end of the tunnel so to keep going and keep holding the light is quite important. Mm, thank you. And I think there's there's a there's another concern that friends and family members are often worried about, and this would be the same in any situation, even if we weren't in um, lockdown at the moment. I think when it's somebody that you care about, somebody that you love, you're worried about offending them. Um, if you label the behaviours, particularly if you label them as kind of abusive, I think domestic abuse is still thought of as something private, as no one else's business, as something that's sensitive, that's taboo. And friends and family members can be really concerned that if they kind of raise this or if they talk to the person, will that person cut off contact with them? And at this time where contact is limited anyway, people are worried that, you know, if they if they try to kind of talk about this topic, you know, will that make things worse for the person? And it can feel really challenging as a friend or family member to feel empowered within this situation, to kind of know what to do for the best, to know how to have that conversation. And certainly when I've spoken to friends and family members during my research, um, they almost don't feel like they have any right to feel anything about the situation, that it shouldn't be affecting them. But you don't have to be the person who's directly experiencing the harming behaviours to be affected by it. People may be feeling helpless. They may be feeling frustrated, confused, scared, angry, um, just really unsure about what to do about the situation at the moment. And it's really OK for friends and family members in this position to reach out for some help and that that has a double benefit. If you reach out for help as a friend or family member, you can be supported and you can get advice yourself. Um, and alongside this podcast, there will be some of the agencies, the details of the agencies that you can um, contact to get this advice and support. But it also means that you're then in the position to be that light at the end of the tunnel that Ursula has mentioned, um, because you may be better informed. So whether you can communicate the information and the advice that you get now or whether you can do that at a later stage when we've kind of moved beyond lockdown, um, 
you may know information then and be able to offer advice. That person who's directly experiencing the abuse may find it hard to access either now or in the future. So a benefit to yourself for understanding and kind of getting that information about services and about what's out there, but then being able to provide that. And I suppose at the moment, if a survivor's got less opportunity to search kind of what help would be out there or understand what that help might look like, then, you know, having a kind of friend or family member or neighbour, like you say, just to be able to say, actually, there's this service and this is what they do or there's this helpline, um, that that could be a really um, important opportunity for them right now. Absolutely. Um, so, Ursula, from a survivor perspective, um, what's the most helpful things a friend or family member can do right now? What are the things that have like biggest impact for them? I think um, signalling that you are available, that you're not going away, um, that regardless of the difficulties of being in touch, that you are there for the person. Um, and obviously for children, this can be... Um, a grandparent of children living in a, a household where abusive behaviours are being used. Um, I think just from personal experience, it can be incredibly difficult to burden particularly family with what's going on. There is this sort of instinctive feeling to want to shield um, your loved ones from um, any, any burden of information so it can be it can be very hard to share so I think for to put it the other way around for the family members just to be aware of that difficulty um, not only to feel that the person they're supporting is maybe minimizing or denying what's happening but to realize that um, there may be reasons why they're doing that so not giving up um, listening just signalling in whatever way is possible. If, for example, it's still possible to be um, seeing each other through Skype or FaceTime or any of the, the, the other options that there are at the moment, just to be signalling with um, body language and um, not necessarily referring directly to things, but in the way that you talk, just to show that, that you are available. Um, so there are all kinds of ways of doing that without directly naming abuse, for example. As Alison said, that can be a very difficult issue to broach and it can feel quite judgmental. But there can be other ways of talking about opening, op leaving a space open, I think, for conversation or for the possibility to signal um, that a person needs help or wants to have help at this point. It, it can be a long road. I mean, I had I had help from from friends, old friends, new friends who were neighbours. Um, but it doesn't mean that you can take the help straight away necessarily or act on it, even under um, less difficult circumstances than the present time. But it doesn't mean that it wasn't useful or that it didn't make a difference. So it's a step-by-step -step approach. And as Alison said, I think if people... Um, are aware that they have the choice to get additional help, maybe even to ask a local service for support um, about how to help a person. The first thing is having the awareness and you being curious about um, what's going on. It doesn't mean you have to know what to do. You can get help with that and, and uh, ask for advice. Yeah, and I think I would add to that, um, 
it isn't the job of a friend or family member to rescue the person um, or to challenge the person who's using harming behaviours or to attempt to bring about the end of the relationship. Even though you may feel that those are things that you want to do, actually it's only the person who's experiencing the harming behaviours who can decide for themselves whether or not they wish to remain in the relationship um, or to if they do decide to leave, only they can decide the safest way and the timing to do that. Um, so even though you might feel kind of quite a strong burden around it, um, as Ursula said, the best thing you can do is kind of to to have gained the um, information that you can to be equipped to be able to offer support and advice. But um, you can't jump in there and do it for somebody else. Um, you can let them know you believe them. You can reassure them that it's not their fault, that the abuse is happening. You can tell them that you're concerned or worried about them and let them know that you want to help. Um, those are your kind of main jobs and main roles within that situation. Um, but you can't bring about an end to the relationship. That's that's not your responsibility as a friend or family member. Mm. So I suppose there's a kind of responsibility that, you know, not that sort of inadvertently, I guess, where um, to know that something's happening for someone or to sort of heavily suspect that, that the sort of weight of responsibility, particularly if you are the only person that knows what's going on, to want to do something about it, isn't it? And I think that's totally natural to, there's a sort of instinct, isn't there, to protect and to want to kind of go in and sort it out. And it's, um, you know, domestic abuse, unfortunately, is not as straightforward as that, is it? So it's kind of like you say, just staying with what that person wants to do when they want to do it. And and I think from what you're both saying, it's that can take a long time. That can be short. There's like it's not a sort of straight path, is it? There's lots of things that might happen along the way that might change. But just being that consistent person that's open and listening is is the thing that can make a massive difference. I think also if um, if this is a new a new or newish situation, a new awareness perhaps about a family member, I think it is possible that with this changed situation that some some people who perhaps may have had a cons some vague worries about a family member or a friend may may be, be, be beginning to feel that actually there is more to this because things may be be becoming starker or there might be um more obvious signs that a person is either very hard to reach or um is really struggling um and we know as well that um it can be particularly difficult and isolating time if a person has um is pregnant or has um a new baby in the household um so there are some sometimes that are particularly concerning where it would be important to get support around that concern um, from via helplines or from a local um, specialist organization mm. um, and also to to I think one of the difficulties when it's a new situation is is having confidence that um, confidence that you are seeing what you're seeing so trusting your perception um, and having some idea of what to do next um there are other problems when a situation has been going on for quite a long time that a person who's been supporting someone over time may really struggle with uh with the ongoing difficulties and the fact that the things perhaps don't seem to be progressing so i suppose it's a kind of like situations where as much as you can then it's staying with that person and 
doing things, supporting them in the way in which they're asking you to. Um, but then situations where actually that might you might not be able to do that and you might need to reach out and get kind of services or intervention for someone if, if you're really worried. And I guess it's important that we're clear on that as well, isn't it? I think so. I think also just looking back um, to this issue about feeling um, not only a sense of shame, but trying to manage the situation by not um, by presenting, for example, quite a, a sort of smiling face to the outside world. Um, that obviously can make it difficult for out, people outside the situation to judge what's going on. Um, but realising that that's not uncommon can help, I think, to see that there might be a disconnect that, between what you feel is going on or some of the signs that you're seeing or perhaps things you're hearing um, in a neighbouring household um, and what you see when the family perhaps are outside the house or, or um, it, you know, if you, you meet in other circumstances. So to realise that it is okay to consider what might be behind smiling faces or neat um, gardens and uh, routine routines that look normal. So to be curious is not a bad thing, as long as, as Alison said, that you don't feel you have to... Um, to to act on um act rashly in ways that aren't safe to do so yeah and i'd reiterate what ursula has said about trusting your instincts i think your gut reaction is is there for a reason and if you feel that something unhealthy or something harmful is going on in a relationship of someone you know it probably is um and if you're feeling that something's not right but you're not quite sure it's okay to gently check in with people and I don't mean asking them kind of directly are you experiencing domestic abuse because most of us have quite a fixed idea of what that means and people may not relate um, their experiences to that term um, but it's giving people an easy opening to a conversation and I recognize our conversations are a little bit different at the moment um, given the current circumstances but it's about building trust and asking questions in a way that shows I suppose your kindness your concern um, so asking if people are okay asking if anyone has upset them um, whether anything is worrying them those kind of very gentle ways in I suppose that if somebody wants to tell you something is happening that they can um, it gives the person a kind of a signal that you're open and open to hearing about their experiences so you don't have to delve deeply you don't have to ask the kind of in-depth questions you can simply show interest show that you care open up the possibility um, for the person to speak in future maybe not not even now but maybe at some point in the future and you don't have to have all the answers if somebody does open up by listening. That can just be really helpful to somebody to kind of admit what's happening and it breaks the silence around the situation. But as I've said, of course, communicating at the moment in a safe way might be a little bit more difficult to do just now. So people who are in the position of a friend or a family member maybe need to think about whether communication by phone or by online means is is private, whether it's secure, whether it's perhaps being monitored by the person who's using harming behaviours. So if you're having perhaps a Skype conversation or a telephone conversation 
with someone who you're concerned about, you maybe need to think about whether there are other people in the background to that conversation who are listening or people who are checking texts. So actually maybe using the more gentle questions at the moment is perhaps appropriate um, because it, it looks, if somebody is monitoring what's happening, it looks less uh, like you're trying to get involved maybe. Yeah, and I guess that's conversations that are quite common at the moment, isn't it? Because I guess, you know, regardless of people's situations, everyone's going to be struggling a little bit, aren't they, with the current situation? So it's sort of, um, yeah, that's quite, we imagine it'd be quite a common kind of conversation where it's like, are you all right? How are you doing? Da, 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 and kind of mm-hmm. like say, having those sort of gentle questions that um, someone might not pick up on as being kind of directed around concerns about domestic abuse. And I was just thinking about sort of children within household as well that a friend or family member um, could have quite an important role to play on sort of checking in with the kids in that family if they've got a good relationship with them and that could be another way of just offering support couldn't it to the family or um, potentially knowing if things are getting worse and if things aren't all right do you think that's a kind of harder thing for friends and family members to do or or just depends on the situation Um, I think that that's a really important thing I think uh, sometimes we forget just how much children are part of the picture and also capable of um, of being reached into, so or reaching out for help. And I think they will they will um, benefit from any signal from um, trusted adults that that then they can be listened to, that they're noticed. Um, and also being aware again of their, um, we may see see neighbouring children, we may see children from our families on on Skype or, or whatever, to be aware of all the little signals, again, in body language and behaviour, um, and just uh, showing that we're there for them. It can be really important. Yeah, we recorded a podcast yesterday. I don't know if that will go out before or after this one, um, but with um, two of our pioneers who experienced domestic abuse growing up in the family. And um, one of the things they were talking about was um, that it's so hard to tell somebody, but if somebody asks you the difference that that can make. And like you were saying, the same thing with survivors, you might not choose to disclose anything at that moment, but just knowing that there's someone that's kind of noticed or has an interest or could be able to talk about how you are is so vital. So I think that's um, it's easy to forget sometimes, isn't it, around like when we're thinking about kind of survivors, but thinking about that kind of whole household and support they might need. I know that my children felt very much they were always asked about me and how I was and got the feeling they were just being asked to look after me and that they really wanted people to ask about their experience, which is very different to being the adult in the, you're living with perhaps the same behaviours, but the experience is quite specific. So feeling that people are actually interested in how, how is, how are things going for you as a child or as a teenager, not as the son or daughter of an adult in the house. And I think we really underestimate how much children are aware of what's happening and how much they're impacted by it. Um, We maybe think, well, they were asleep whilst it was happening or they were in the next door room. But children see and hear and experience directly so much more than we realise. 
when they're in a home where there's um, harming behaviours, abusive behaviours happening. Yeah, and it kind of feeds into sort of people being focused on an incident rather than the kind of patterns of behaviour that are going on all the time. Um, Particularly the coercive control aspects around being able to have choices in the home. I think that that's something um, that affects everybody living in, in that household without a doubt. So I think one of the really important things that a friend or family member or work colleague or a neighbour can do is to um, remember that people need to feel they have choices and that if they're living with abuse, they may feel that they don't have any choices at this time. Yeah, and I know that we've, and that reminds me, because I know that we kind of, and I do this a lot when we're talking about friends and families, talk about friends and family, and and we're sort of mentioning neighbours, but work colleagues. And I know when uh, when the three of us have discussed this before, that that you both view kind of colleagues as having such an important role potentially to notice how somebody is or to kind of reach out um, and offer support. and I know it's sort of, again, it's a different situation at the moment, isn't it? It's sort of depending on what role people do, whether they're key workers, but a lot of us working from home. Um, but there still might be things that they could pick up on or ways in which they could reach out, I think. Definitely. Um, certainly with my own work and the shift that's happened, um, I'm actually seeing probably far more of my colleagues, <laughs> uh, albeit via um, Skype or Zoom at the moment. And um Actually, you may notice things when you're in conversation with your colleagues at the moment, when you're having online calls and that kind of thing. You may notice something about their home environment if they're working from home. Um, You may notice something about their kind of behaviour or their demeanour, how they look, how they respond, how they react. So it may even be that in the current circumstances, work colleagues are having more contact or more regular contact albeit via online and telephone means um, with people who are experiencing abuse. Mm. So um, what advice would you give to friends and family? What are the sort of key things for them to think about? Well I guess for me first and foremost I'd like to reassure friends and family members, neighbours and colleagues that they're an incredibly valuable resource Um, And because of that, they really need to look after themselves. If people look after themselves and feel less overwhelmed by the situation um, that they're worried about, then they'll be in a better position to support the person who's actually directly experiencing the harming behaviours. And there's a guide that sits alongside this podcast. And there's some things in there about kind of taking time out, about sleep routines, exercise, creating opportunities for yourself to reach out to get advice and support and to talk about what's happening. And those are just some pointers, really, for people to think about how they can how they can make sure they are doing OK, um, because if they're doing OK, they'll be able to support somebody else better. Um, I think part of this is also thinking about your own safety. It can be risky to confront someone who is using harming behaviours and it can be risky both for you and also for the person you're trying to support. Um, So do be careful about how you approach this issue um, and also particularly at the moment how you check in with people. It's good to check in with people, but just to think about how you can do that safely. Uh, So what advice would you give? 
Um, I think I would echo what Alison said. I think it's incredibly helpful. Just thinking back to um, my own experience, uh, it would have been incredibly helpful to have some of that advice at that time and to have a guide to go back to, um, just to acknowledge that it is abuse affects much more than the family um, where it's taking place. So it is a, an issue for wider family and for the wider community. So um, I would really echo that, that you, you, you have a right to also to get help as a helper. So not to give up, but if things are, if you're struggling with some aspects of it, to think it is okay to ask for help. And in terms of practical things to do, I think do reach out to the organisations that, that um, are listed on the, the web page here. Um, but in a crisis, if you think things have got substantially worse or you fear that the person is in danger, it's OK to take action and to call the police. That's not for every situation. But if you're concerned, if you're if you're becoming worried that there's there's harm and risk and danger and that they are increasing, do please call the police. Um, another thing you can do on a very practical level is to keep a record of what's going on. Um, if you've noticed things, if you've seen things, if you've spotted things, if the person has told you things about what have been happening, if you can keep some kind of log of that um, with kind of times and dates, I think that can be valuable for all sorts of reasons. It can be valuable um, if the situation ends up going to court um, at a later date. But I think it can also be really valuable to perhaps provide feedback to the person you're trying to support later on, that you could check in with them and say, well, look, these are things I noticed or these are things um, that you told me that happened. Um, and it might help the person who had experienced those harming behaviours to perhaps acknowledge what was happening in their relationship and to perhaps open up that conversation um, at some point in the future. So keeping that log um, could be a really helpful thing to do. Um, but also using the small windows of opportunity that we have got at the moment to reach out. Um, there are governmental guidelines and they're there for a reason about how we stay in and how we socially distance. But there is also a little bit of creativity within that perhaps that we could use um, perhaps doing somebody's shopping for them and using that as an opportunity when you deliver the shopping to their door to just check in whether they're okay, perhaps offering to go out and collect a prescription with them, but doing that in a socially distanced way that you stay a couple of metres apart, but that you might have an opportunity to talk. I'm certainly not saying we override the guidelines, but we may need to be a little bit creative at this moment in time. Yeah, I agree. And I think with the... Uh the kind of keeping a log of what's what you notice happening I think that could be massively reassuring for someone experiencing that because I think um, part of one of the impacts of domestic abuse can be really questioning whether things have happened as you, you think they have or um, the person the abusive person giving a different narrative to what's going on and it can be really difficult to um, trust your own instincts so that's could be vital in that part of 
that understanding around what's going on, being believed, um, being reassured by somebody else, seeing that behaviour could be quite important on a step to, to seeking more help or making decisions around what's going on. I agree about that. I think um, one of the big problems when you're in it is that you, in one sense, you're just purely living in the moment and being quite reactive. Very often you don't feel that you have much um as I said, many choices to make. So quite often you are reacting rather than taking the initiative because it feels less safe to take the initiative. So it can mean that you get a very scrambled narrative in your own mind about what happened and also what order things happened in. So it can be extremely useful to have somebody else um, keep that narrative for you. So I definitely agree with that keeping a log um is something that can be firstly almost impossible for the person themselves to do. It's not 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 un, unknown that a person will keep a record of some things and then destroy them because they are nervous about keeping such things in the house. So there there definitely are there definitely is a role for other people around them to do that. Mm. So as Alison's mentioned, um, alongside this podcast, there's um, a blog um, kind of describing some of the things that might be going on right now, some tips um, around um, what people could do and a link to a bigger guide um, with lots of detail around domestic abuse and really thinking about that kind of impact on friends and family members themselves. So that's all kind of linked in that blog. Um, so please do take a look at that. Um, so finally, is there, I mean, it's hard because as you've said so much uh, kind of really important pieces of advice and things to think about, but um, is there kind of one thing you'd want people to take away from listening to our podcast? Uh, Alison, over to you first. The one thing I would say is to keep in touch with people that you're worried about. Um, stay in touch with them. Let them know that you care. Um, find safe ways of checking in with them um, and try and find creative ways to be in touch and to be in contact. Let them know that you're still there. Thank you. Well, I'd just echo what Alison said, but just to use that metaphor again, that you do have hold a light for people. You may not realise that you do, but um, everyone in that circumstance, everyone around a person going through abuse has the potential to hold a light for them and provide guidance along the way. Thank you both very much um, for taking part in this podcast. Thank you.